years. And Jesus knew how long it had been that this man had been paralyzed. And he asked the man if he was wanting to be well. And he just healed the guy. He said, take up your mat and walk. Now, uh, it was the Sabbath that this occurred. And the Jews were upset with the man who'd been healed. Because he was carrying his mat on the Sabbath day. So instead of being overjoyed that, man, we've seen this guy here for 38 years. This is incredible. God's doing something. Instead, these rule keepers were all about the rules being kept. And, and they were misunderstanding the rules in all of their obedience and all of their external self-righteousness. And so they were upset with the man. And the man kind of pointed it to, hey, the guy that told me to rise up and walk told me to carry my bed. And, I mean, that seems like a pretty good thing to do after you've been healed, right? And uh, later on in the temple... Jesus saw this man who'd been made well, and he said to him, hey, you know, don't sin anymore. Stop sinning, run away from sin, or else something worse is going to happen to you. That leads us to assume that there was something that he had done that was sinful that had led to this paralysis. Maybe, maybe not, but it it leads to that assumption. And uh, in this man's case, uh, Jesus says, you know, just stop sinning or something worse is going to happen. And Many books that I read this last week said that, that this guy, who was a little bit of a crotchety old man, is, is kind of what multiple books use that language, uh, said that, that he essentially went back to the Jews and threw Jesus under the bus. Like, this guy knows whatever sin that i kind of been doing and that I've been waiting to be healed so that I could go back to this, <laughs> and they told me not to. Like, that guy over there is the guy that told me to take up my bed and walk on the Sabbath. So then the Jews are going to go around and they're going to start interrogating Jesus. They're going to confront Jesus. And Jesus is going to give an epic response to them as to why he would do such a thing. Why would he heal a man on the Sabbath? And why would he command the man to break the Sabbath by carrying his bed? So as we look at verse 16 of John chapter 5, For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he's done this thing on the Sabbath. So this kind of begins some real hostility in the gospel of John against Jesus. Like before he was kind of, oh, this guy's kind of intriguing and interesting. And I'm not kind of sure where he's coming from, but I'll kind of hear him out. And he's going to, this is it guys. This gets the ball rolling to where these, these guys are going to want to kill him. They're going to want to crucify Jesus. So they begin to persecute him, which speaks of hunting him down, pursuing him, uh, putting him to flight because they they desired to kill him. Uh, And so this is that moment where there's a rising desire to kill Jesus. And in this case, it was because he'd done all these things on the Sabbath. Kind of a, how dare you, sir? You know, how dare you heal this man and how dare you do it on the Sabbath and how dare you command him to break the Sabbath as well. As F.F. Bruce, a biblical historian, says, inciting others to break the law as they as the Jews understood it was worse than breaking it yourself. So whatever this man was doing, Jesus was worse because he incited him to break it. Dodds cites Lightfoot in saying, Whosoever on the Sabbath bringing, bringeth anything in or taketh anything out from a public place to a private one, if he's done this inadvertently, he can go make a sacrifice for his sin. But if it was willfully, he shall be cut off and be stoned. So this is a big deal. I mean, there's some serious issue that's happening here at the pool of Bethesda. 
And so Jesus is going to explain uh, just why he did what he did. Okay, look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Okay, guys, I just have to warn you. This isn't your rainbows and unicorns and kittens Bible study, okay? This is like we're getting into some Bible college deep doctrine, okay? So lace up your hiking boots, roll up your sleeves, like put your glasses on and get ready to dive in deep as to what's going on here. Because I'm just going to tell you, it's deep. We're probably not going to even get as far as I've studied for. So the next time we're together is going to be deep. And you got to be ready. Like, we're, we're going to chew on some steak today, okay? So put your milk bottle down and get ready. Like, let's do this thing, okay? And I just got to warn you, I'm terrified to teach this because it's so deep. I don't know if I'm, I'm not qualified, but I'm all you got, so. <laughs> I'm not all you got. There's a couple other guys who can do this. Okay, so here we go. Jesus says to them, my father has been working until now. And I've been working. (gasps) Okay, this is bigger than you would think. Why is my watch beeping? Oh, the thing that wouldn't work before is now working. Okay. God has been working since before the foundation of the world. Uh, Has been working. And Jesus picks up on that by saying, I also have been working. He's beginning to bring himself and rather show himself to be equal in authority with the Father. Jesus is going to go through the rest of this chapter to basically show he is God. Okay? The Jews are going to want to kill him for it. And it it complements the theme of the whole book of John And that is that Jesus is God, okay? That key verse from John chapter 20, verse 31. These things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God. That means he's God. And that by believing you might have life in his name, okay? So the question was asked, does God keep the Sabbath? We know he rested on that final day of creation, but does he continue to keep the Sabbath? If not, does God himself become a lawbreaker? Or if he does observe the Sabbath, who keeps the universe a running while he's resting? Philo was a Greek Hellenistic uh, Jew, heavily influenced in the Hellenism, or Hellenistic writers. And he denied that God has ever ceased to work uh, of his, from his creation. The rabbis had a consensus among them that God uh, works on the Sabbath. For otherwise, providence itself would go into disrepair, okay? So the consensus of the rabbis was that God never stops working regardless of what day it is. By the end of the first century, there were four different prominent, eminent rabbis, well-respected who wrestled through this and discussed this point, and they concluded that although God works constantly, he cannot be charged with violating the Sabbath law 
And that's for three reasons. Number one, the entire universe is his domain. So he's never carrying anything out of it or into it. It's all his. Number two, God fills the whole world. And number three, God lifts nothing higher than his own statute. Okay? Or own stature, rather. All right, so these eminent rabbis in trying to figure out, does God take a Sabbath rest, said he never stops working. And even if he did, even if he kept working on the Sabbath, he, he would not be breaking any laws, okay? F.F. F. Bruce said, on one point, they all agreed that God was active all of the time. On Sabbath days as much as on ordinary days. You know the song we love to sing? You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. We can just keep singing. The rest of the sermon is going to be just singing that. Because he never stops working. And so Jesus says, the Father has been working. And Jesus has been working. Maybe you have the ESV version. Uh... I am working currently. So the father's been working and now here we are on the Sabbath and check it out. I'm working or the NIV says I too am working. Jesus is showing that he is equal with the father in authority. Philo also said God never stops working for as it is the property of fire to burn and of snow to be cold so of God to work. He never stops. He never stops working. Okay, that's his property. He never stops working. Carson says, Jesus insists that whatever factors justify God's continuous work since creation also justifies Jesus's continuous work from creation. Okay, you guys still doing okay? Okay. We're going to have the ushers pass out some Advil in a little bit. Everyone, okay? And some Kleenex. All right. Uh, Carter says, here Jesus gets the opportunity to defend himself. Jesus responds to them, my father is still working and I am working also. In in a very respectful way, it might be said, like father, like son. Okay? In John 17, 4. I've glorified you on earth. Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. You never stop working. I never stop working. And so the acts of mercy, the healing, the kindness, the compassion that benefited other people, even on the Sabbath day, fit the spirit of the command of the Sabbath Exactly. And so to forbid it would be a perversion of what God had intended in the, um, the mandate of the Sabbath law. Okay. Um, and so F.F. Bruce said, he therefore regarded acts of healing and relief, not as permanent exceptions to the prohibition of work on the Sabbath, but as deeds which should be done. By pre- as preference on that day, because they so signally fulfilled the divine purpose of the institution. Remember last week we saw what Jesus said when confronted about his disciples eating grain on and picking grain on the Sabbath. When he said that the Sabbath was made for man's benefit. 
Man wasn't made to be subservient to the Sabbath. And it's there that Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. So I get to tell you how the Sabbath functions and operates and how it ought to be done. Carson said that the healed man is justified in carrying his mat because Jesus had ordered him to do so. And in doing so, Jesus was working just like the father. The fact that Jesus works falls into the same category as the father's works serves to exonerate this man from carrying his mat. I love what Carter said here. I had to highlight it in a whole bunch of different colors. We need to understand Jesus's logic. He's not saying that because God works on the Sabbath, anyone can work on the Sabbath. Well, he did it. Okay, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that because God works on the Sabbath, he can. For Jesus' defense to be valid, all the factors that apply to God the Father must apply to Jesus. So Jesus is insisting here that whatever factors justify God's continuous works justify his. The Jews understood exactly what Jesus was claiming here. They got it. That he was claiming to be equal with God the Father. And that moves us into verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Oh, they wanted to kill him back in verse 16. And now in verse 18, you might underline it, all the more they had motive for the execution. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, which is bad, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So there's a showdown at the OK Corral here by the Pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem that's been brewing and is now taking place. The religious leaders of Israel are faced with a decision. Will they submit to the authority of Jesus who's claiming to be equal with God? Or they rebel against his authority and choose to live in their own ways and according to what's right in their own eyes or autonomously? In the synagogue services and prayers of thanksgiving, the Jews were accustomed to address God as our father. So what's the big deal? We said Jesus is our father, God is our father. He says God is his father. We're all the same, right? It's the same. No, Jesus appeared to be claiming God as his own father. Like, he's my dad. He used to play catch in the backyard, you know? And it was in an exceptional and exclusive way that Jesus was doing so. Now, to the Greeks, there's nothing extraordinary to this claim. They habitually thought of other men, outstanding men, as being godlike. They were endowed with some sort of superhuman, unusual, generous share of the divine nature. But for the Jews, there was a line that had been crossed. Between the divine and the human, there's a line there, and Jesus was crossing it. It was unthinkable that anyone would think they were comparable to God, as Isaiah 40:25 was super um, ingrained into them. And we'll get into some of these. But, uh, but basically, this just begins the ball rolling of the Jews seeking to kill Jesus. And this verse is so important, because many of the, the skeptics and the critics, and I would say the cults, 
best way to test to see if a, if some sort of religious sect is a cult is who they say about Jesus. Namely, do they believe that Jesus is God? Okay. Orthodox Christianity from the beginning believed that Jesus was God. And so many times you'll be sharing your faith with people and they'll say, Jesus never claimed to be God. And right here you see Jesus was claiming to be God. And he doesn't just claim it once. The whole section, and I'm going to be honest, it's probably going to take me at least another week to get through. This whole section, let alone the whole book of John, is Jesus showing that he is equal with God. Okay? And the, Jesus knew he was doing it. The Jews knew he was doing it. John knew that he was doing it. Uh, this is it, guys. Jesus is claiming to be God, and they want to kill him for it, and they will eventually kill him for it. Jesus' opponents instantly grasp the significance of his remark about God has been working, and I'm working. And that's why the gasp. Because <gasps> they knew exactly what he was saying. They remember Isaiah 40, 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare to him? And you can look at Jesus and say to him, because Jesus is God. He's not the father. He's not the Holy Spirit. The father's not the Holy Spirit. The father's not the son. There are three persons in the one Godhead, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. All right, And here Jesus is emphasizing and declaring his deity as the son of God. All right. Um, doing a little filtering here as I read. But it's in response to a charge of blasphemy here that Jesus is going to provide for us what some have called is the most formal, systematic statement of his deity... If his organic union with God the Father of any that comes in the whole of the Gospels. Okay, now, many of you have done a Bible reading plan. You've read through John. You love John. I have a little booklet called Living Water that's nothing but the Gospel of John that I'd hand out to people when I'm sharing the Gospel with them. It's, it's a great book. It's a pretty easy read. And I was really excited to get into John because I was like, oh, this will be just an easy book to teach. And it's going to be like, maybe I'll put my feet up on my desk while I'm studying and be like, oh, yeah, John, it's just such an easy read. It is so hard. It is such a hard book. I study and I study books. I'm like, this book is so hard. Yeah. And I just feel like I'm trying to run and quit. Oh, yeah. Oh, John chapter 5, there's a paralyzed guy at a pool of angel finger dipping. It's going to be an easy one. Yeah. Oh, it's not easy. Not easy, guys. This whole section is thick. Okay? And Jesus is going to use it, and I love that. What we're going to get into is the most formal, systematic statement of his deity. And if you just glossed over it, and you're trying to speed through your Bible reading plan, you're not going to catch it. You're not going to understand it. it. It's thick. It's like oatmeal that's been sitting on the stove that, Needs a little more water. It's been sitting there for like a couple hours, and your wife's like, hey, I made you some oatmeal a couple hours ago. And you're like, okay. Oh, no, we got to add some water to it or something. Like, this is where we're at. Add, Lord, add some water to it. Right now, I'm trying to add water to it. Not, okay. The Jews' response to the information Jesus gave them was wrong. Let's kill him. Okay. But their understanding of Jesus' statement was not wrong. They understand it. They just want to kill him for it. Okay. 
These verses right here are pivotal in John's gospel. And they defy anything that's under headings as you try to make an outline for it. I've had like three different sets of outlines that I've been going through trying to figure out how Jesus is breaking it down. Okay, you can make your own outlines. I'm going to give you a couple, but you might find like, I think this is better here. And I think, okay, remember this is Bible college. How's Bible college going today? Everyone gets a letterman's jacket. It's going to be awesome. Okay. C.S. Lewis said, if Christianity were something we were making up, of course we'd make it easier. All right. If I were making up a religion, I'd leave this part out. Like, let's be honest, it's a little thick and odie. Okay. But you can't do that when you're dealing with facts. Okay, because we're dealing with truth and it's been given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we got to deal with it. We got to pull it apart and it's got to be like string cheese. You know, you know when your, your kid takes the string cheese and they just, and you're like, oh, that ain't right. You know, you know how it is though when you're like, you try to get the smallest little, right? That's what we're going to have to do with this. I'm trying to distract for a little bit. (laughs) Maybe today we won't get into it. Who knows? Okay. We are pressed to grapple with profound statements in the Bible and with difficult things. And we're forced to stretch our minds, which is a difficult thing for me, as you can tell. And so let's get into it. In verse 19, Jesus, in a heading that would maybe say, is equal is equal e, well my heading says equality with god in power okay he's equal with god in power and if he has authority then he must be obeyed right if jesus has the authority of god he's equal with god in power then that authority demands obedience And so Jesus stresses his deity by describing his unity with the Father in these verses. Later on, like in chapter 14, he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, also God, okay? But here he's he's talking about how he's equal in value and power with the Father, okay? And, uh, And so he's going to reveal his authority here. Looking at verse 19, Then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. Okay. So Jesus reveals his deity and his authority in three ways. Number one, Jesus does what only God can do. Okay. Maybe that's a little heading in your notes. Jesus does what only God can do. Leon Morris says of this section, the language Jesus uses throughout is thoroughly rabbinic. Okay, It's like he's a rabbi and he's just speaking to the mind of the Jews here. Now, it's not that Jesus does not act independent from the Father, but instead he cannot act independent independent from the father okay it's not that he doesn't like i could if i would but i won't no it's that he can't 
Why can't he act independently from the Father? Because he's one in power and authority with the Father. He's not denying his own personal authority, but he's making a statement of his eternal interwovenness with the Father in this act with healing the man on the Sabbath and commanding him to pack up his mat and walk, and in every other act since before the creation of the world, he's been eternally interwoven with the Father. It's not that I don't act on my own, it's that I can't. Because I'm God. Deep stuff. Jesus does not do anything on his own. Everything he does is perfectly in concert with the Father's work and will. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. The Son can do nothing of himself, Jesus said back there in verse 19. And what he... Uh, but what he sees the father do. He's like an imitator of the father as that dear son. It's been said that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And when you look at Jesus, the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. The apple hasn't fallen off the tree. See what I'm saying? Jesus is God. He's not a chip off the old block. He's a knot in the block that makes him the block. Okay, I really thought of all these quaint little father-son sayings, and you guys were like, I think the apple should fall off the tree. Okay. I'm like, the chip off the old block. Dustin, help me out here. Like, if you keep the chip on, you can glue the chip back on. Okay. Come on, guys. He's a knot in the block that's never coming out. Woodworkers, can I get an amen? Okay. Ooh. <laughs> John 14, 9. Let's turn the heat down in here, Adam. All right. This is so intimately true that Jesus can say to Philip in John 14, 9, in the middle of the verse, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I see the apple on the tree. I see the whole tree. I see the knot in the block. I see the whole chunk of wood. Okay? He who has seen the Son, you see the Father. He who has seen me act in my great miracles on earth has seen the Father act. In Matthew 26, 39, he went a little farther, fell on his face, and prayed out, saying, Oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There's a great accord in how the Trinity works. There's great deference. There's great humility. There's great submission. We're going to see many similar verses throughout the Gospel of John in chapter 5, 6, 8, 12, and 14. To worship God is to worship Jesus. And to worship Jesus is to worship God. Not only does the Son always do what pleases the Father, but He can only do what He sees His Father doing. And so the thought runs like this, as D.A. Carson puts it. It's impossible for the son to take independent, self-determined action that would set him over and against the father as another God. For all the son does is both coincident with and coextensive with all that the father does. As Westcott says, perfect sonship 
involves perfect identity of will and action with the Father. Carson says it follows that separate self-determined action would be a denial of his sonship. It also constitutes another oblique claim to deity for the only one who could conceivably do whatever the father does must be as great as the father and as divine as the father. And so the authority that Jesus acted with on this day at the pool of Bethesda was the same authority that the father acts with. Look at verse 20. Where are we at? That timer that I had going. Ooh, yeah, it's still going. You want to know what it says? It's for me to know and for you to never find out. Okay, but there is a timer, so don't worry. There will be an end. Verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. So there's this great relationship in the Trinity. There's great communion. There's great fellowship in the Trinity. Eugene, you read uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, and he's just, man, he's just pouring out this incredible conversation with the Father about the fellowship that I had with you from before the world has been. And I want everyone to have that kind of fellowship with each other and with you. And, and there's just a great friendship there. And, and there's this great relationship. There's love in the Trinity. The Father loves the Son. And he shows the son all things that he himself does. Matthew 3.17, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The father's pleased with the son. John 3.35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Matthew eleven twenty seven. all things have been delivered to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him. Several scholars say that what Jesus is saying in this verse is a reworkable parable. And that Jesus is kind of going back and reminiscing to time with his earthly father in the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. When he was learning the trade and the craft and serving as an apprentice under Joseph, his dad. And his dad would, you know, take the, take the plane and begin planing out the wood. And he'd say, hey, you see that knot in this board? The knot is just as much a part of the board. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, and Jesus is like, you're stretching that one, dad. You know, and he would teach him as an apprentice about how to sand and how to wax on, wax off and all of that good stuff. Okay. Because the father loves the son and teaches him all that is in his will. Just this last week, I was out driving with my son. We just got a, a, it's not a new truck. It's a newer truck to us. And it's a stick shift. And I've been looking forward to teaching my 11-year-old. Well, how old is he now? Oh, I mean, Lainey's 11. And I've also been looking forward to teaching her. But so he's how old again? 13? Yeah. Russell. Sorry, buddy. Okay. You know, teaching him how to drive a stick, you know, and it's got this aftermarket clutch and it's sticky and it's just crazy. It's just big, you know, and we're out on this dirt road and Russell's just, he's learning how to drive a clutch and, you know, all the crazy noises that can make, you know, when you're driving it perfectly, which he did the entire time in case you're wondering. Okay. But it's that God, that father's pleasure to teach his son, you know, all that he knows. Now the difference though is in this reworkable parable is that the son has always known everything as well. They've always been eternal together. But 
the father in his love for the son is showing him everything in this great will and in this great plan. The love of the father for the son is displayed in a continuous disclosure of all he does to the son. And the love of the son to the father is displayed in the perfect obedience that was issued even to the point of Jesus' death on the cross. And it says there in the latter part of verse 20, and he will show him greater works than these. You see, the Pharisees were so concerned about what Jesus had done at the pool of Bethesda, and this guy's carrying a mat, right? They're so concerned about that, they missed the part that a, a guy that's been paralyzed for 38 years is now walking around as good and as whole as new. And they're concerned about that, and Jesus is saying, you know what? The best is yet to come. There's more that's going to come. And you are going to marvel. You're going to be astonished. You're going to be struck dumb with some sudden fear or terror. You ain't seen nothing yet is what Jesus is saying here in this verse. You're concerned that I healed, you're concerned that I healed a lame man. Watch me give life to the dead. And he says it to their amazement. What are the greater things than these that Jesus will do? In verse 21, he's the giver of life. I've given health, I'm giving life. For as the Father raises the dead, verse 21, and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. And so one sign that will cause the Jews to marvel is the raising from the dead. The Jews appreciated God's creative power, and Jesus has that same power. The Jews believed that God and none but God was the raiser of the dead. This is one of his chief prerogatives of God and one of the greatest tokens of his power. There's a great synagogue prayer called the Amidah or the 18 benedictions. And if you go to the second benediction out of 18, go to the second one, the Jews would pray this in the synagogue. Thou, O Lord, are mighty forever. You quicken the dead and you are mighty to save. You sustain the living with loving kindness. You quicken the dead in great mercy. You support the fallen, heal the sick, loose those who are bound, and keep the faith with those who sleep in the dust. Who is like you, O Lord, of mighty acts? Who is comparable to you, O King, who bring to death and quicken again and cause salvation to spring forth? Yea, you are faithful to quicken the dead. Blessed are you, O Lord, who quicken the dead. So the Jews knew that Jesus, or rather that God, quickens the dead. And Jesus says there's going to be a greater work that's coming that's going to show that I am. And it's that I'm going to raise the dead. I'm going to give life. Deuteronomy 32, 39, halfway through, the Jews knew that God says, I kill and I make alive. Or 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, the prayer of Hannah, the Lord kills and makes alive. Or 2 Kings 5, 7, halfway through, I am God to kill and make alive. Okay, so when Jesus makes this claim that he is going to give life, it's another claim of his deity and his equality with God in being able to do the unthinkable. And you can, you know, we're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but like Luke 7, 11, 7, 11, uh, through 16, just a good way to remember it. That Jesus comes and he touches an open coffin and those that carried this dead man stood still and he says, young man, I say to you, arise. 
So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Jesus would raise the dead. I mean, he's in the casket. And Jesus would raise the dead. Or Luke 8, 49 through 56, pointing out verse 54, he puts all of the, the mockers outside, takes the little dead girl by the hand and calls, saying, Little girl, arise. And then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. So when the Jews say, who do you think you are doing this? Jesus says back, I'm God. And if this is going to bug you, wait till you see this, because it's going to prove that I am God. Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Just as the father gives life, so does the son give life. Just as Jesus chose one man out of a crowd of ill people by Bethesda, so he chose, uh, chooses those to whom he gives life. And for the sake of time, that is where we will pause for the day. <sighs> some of you say, ah, some of you say, praise God. Okay, uh, I was going to say worship team come back up. And I think I still will. Worship team come on up. Uh, is that an awkward end? It's Bible college, so it's a little different today, right? You're like, I don't know what to do. What do I do with my hands right now? <laughs> Man, there is so much. I just, I would love to just be able to go through all of this because it ties together so incredibly. But essentially, what we're seeing here is that Jesus has authority. And when you read the Gospels, the Jews would just get so peeved with Jesus and they would ask him, by what authority do you do these things? And that's when Jesus would say, like in the Gospel of Mark, hey, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. And so they're like, well, okay. And he says, okay, so, you know, the message of John the Baptist, you know, where's he from? Is he from heaven or is he just a regular man? And they kind of had a little powwow and they're like, well, if we say that John's... Uh, just a man, that's going to make a lot of people angry, you know? And if we say that, you know, they just kind of come back, we're just not even going to answer you. And Jesus says, then I'm not going to answer you. Because if you really thought about John the Baptist, who you actually had a respect for, you'll remember that John the Baptist, who seemed to have prophetic authority, pointed to me, Jesus, and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John the Baptist testified that Jesus was God. And so what Jesus is doing in chapter 5 is he's setting up this great systematic theology and doctrine of his deity, his power, his authority, that he is worthy to be obeyed in all things, even if it goes against our personal little, like, pet peeves, packing that mat on the Sabbath, obey Jesus. Worship Jesus. He's worthy to be worshipped. And even, spoiler alert, going into what last verse we were in and filling in the rest of the chapter, when Jesus begins this little dialogue about how the greater works that he does is that he gives life. He quickens the dead. Not only ought we, ought we to obey him, not only we ought to worship him, but we ought to ask ourselves, this is the most important. 
has he touched this coffin and said, come out of it? Or has he touched your hand, ladies, and said, little girl, arise? And it shows us the sovereign hand of God in salvation and saving us and bringing life into this dead, stone-cold heart that we have as human beings with a sinful nature that we've been born into. You might be a very religious, moralistic person. Very polished and clean on the outside. People kind of fear you and tremble when you're around because this guy appears to have it all together. Or this lady seems to be very, like, type A, put together, dots all her I's, crosses all her T's. Like, must be a Christian. (laughs) But the real question is, though you may look as polished as even the Jewish Pharisees that Jesus is talking to, Has the God who created and called light out of darkness looked at you and touched your heart and said, little girl, arise, and given life to you, and said, come out, man, come out of the tomb, come out of the grave. And if you've never had that experience where the Lord has touched your heart and taken you from Stone Cold Steve Austin, like, I mean, this whole Jesus stuff, I kind of want to live my own life, don't talk to me about Jesus. I'm not going to be vulnerable before God and confess all my sins to him, let alone get together with a brother in Christ and confess my sins to a brother. If, has the Lord softened you, stone cold guy? Has the Lord softened you and melt your waxy heart? Or do you still have a hard heart like clay? And so as we close in worship, it's important to not just have information come in, head knowledge just puffs you up, but it's important to ask Jesus to take all of this and push it down into here right now. And to go, it's, it's not just about knowing the five points of why Jesus is God and, you know, how we can do something on the Sabbath day. Like, that's really not going to be too impressive to a lot of people at your work when you start talking to them about that. But what is important is why could Jesus have done that on the Sabbath day? Because he's God. He's creator of the world. He's the one that's pursued his sinful creation. And he actually went and lived a perfect life and died the death of a sinner so that the blood that he shed as God, his perfect, sinless, spotless blood would wash away all of my sin. And I receive that. I receive what he has done for me. It's been said that The distance between so many people that they don't get into heaven is 18 inches. I got so far, but didn't make it to heaven. Just made it 18 inches. Didn't make it. Because that's the distance between your head and your heart. It's like, oh, I had all this up here, but it never worked down here to where I believed what Jesus was saying. And so if you set your things aside and give me one moment, we're just going to, we're going to sing a song about, I believe, I believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And I know it's deep. I know this has been like that oatmeal that I was talking about. It's like a piece of beef jerky that the bag has been left open and it's really hard and dry. And, you know, or a piece of string cheese that's been left open and it's hard and dry. Okay. But let's let the Lord just work it from here to here to where we believe and it begins to affect change in us, giving us life from dead hearts. Amen.